Whenever I get gloomy with the state of the world, I think about the arrivals gate at Heathrow Airport. General opinion starting to make out that we live in a world of hatred and greed. But I don't see that. Seems to me that love is everywhere. Often it's not particularly dignified or newsworthy, but it's always there. Fathers and sons, mothers and daughters, husbands and wives, boyfriends, girlfriends, old friends. When the planes hit the Twin Towers, as far as I know, none of the phone calls from the people on board were messages of hate or revenge. They were all messages of love. If you look for it, I've got a sneaky feeling you'll find that love actually is all around. So comes the time of year of love. You know, this, uh, the, the movie Love Actually, it's become a annual tradition at this time of year when we finally get up to taking out all the Christmas ornaments, getting the Christmas tree, and begin to decorate the house. That's the night that we get together, put the lights up, make some hot chocolate, and as soon as we're done with all the decorations... In goes the DVD, and we watch Love Actually. Great movie. It reminds us about the most basic of fundamental principles of who we are. Everything that we've been talking about. All you need is love. You know, they say that the simplest message is the most powerful and the deepest one of all. And love certainly takes the trophy. God is love. Love conquers all. I think we would all agree that everything we know and understand about our our existence and our lives hangs on the reality and the concept of love. The religious would certainly ascribe and proclaim the first statement, God is love, to be absolutely true and to be the very definition of life itself. The second one, all you need is love. Well, a lot of music and plenty of artists make love a pretty central uh, part of their writing. The best stories are the ones where two people fall in love, love wins the day, and happily ever after is truly forever. The fireworks and applause the hearts melting, and all is right with the world. But that's just it, isn't it? Because all is not right with the world. Love is the great ideal. It's the greatest want and desire of mankind. Our novels tell us, our, our movies tell us, our music tell us. Love, love, love. It seems that at the core of our being, we're obsessed with love. And yet, in a world where love is such a dominating force, why do we see all the senselessness and the division and the, the hatred? Individuals willing to, to strap bomb vests to themselves and detonate them in a public place. Children killing children in mass shootings. 
Those who take a car or a semi-truck to run it over a group of people on the street. And all the, all the while not caring who they take. And then, like the monologue at the beginning of Love Actually, the planes that were taken and rammed into buildings. Parents who abuse and murder their children. Children who murder their parents. It's, it's a culture that justifies the killing of unborn children through means that really would rival Bengala and the concentration camps. The main argument against the existence of God is evil exists. And if God is real, if God is love, how can he allow evil? How can he sit there, watch the killing of innocence by these madmen? These things that we see that horrify us. The, the senselessness, it, 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 it becomes to the point that we don't know what to do with it. We say it's unacceptable and we say it's enough. And for those that even believe in God, we say, if I were God, I would... And isn't that the point? By making the accusation, God is evil, or why isn't God doing anything? And because God does nothing, he himself must be evil. And that's because that's exactly what then allows us to say that God doesn't exist. And since we know absolutely what, what evil is and can judge even a deity by our own definition of morality, then we make ourselves God's judge. Each one becomes a God unto him and herself. In all of these responses, there's a common thread. There's a moral posturing that is driven by raw emotion. And if one is to come to the conclusion that there is no God because of all of this evil, then the obvious question is, is there a moral framework that we can all point to and agree that or this is evil? But as we have already talked about, as, we've, as we have already established, if you assume that there is evil, then you automatically assume there is good. And if you assume there is good, then you assume there is an objective moral framework to which all of us agree that all of this evil we see is wrong and doesn't belong. Those who would make such a moral judgment on God are using his own moral framework to pronounce judgment on him. The existence of evil is not the absence of a good God, but proof that each of us has the freedom to choose. And that's where it all begins. Choice. We all have the liberty to make choices, either good or, or either for good or for bad. I mean, tell me that there's a God who limits choice, that coerces choice, and 
in that reality, this itself is a violation of life and freedom. And that, in that reality, that itself is the definition of evil. When our choice is taken away in order to do the bidding of another who dictates what is good. And so the question to those who moralize is to what moral power do we adhere to in order to prevent and end evil? Can love be love if it does not allow for choice, even if that choice is evil? Love is the essence of our existence because it allows us, it allows each of us to be not to be what someone else dictates we should be. What is the old saying? If you truly love someone, let them go, and if it was meant to be, they'll come back to you. Well, what does this imply? That love cannot be coerced by another. Love cannot be forced. By definition, it would not be love at all. In reading these old fairy tales that we love to share with our kids and love growing up with as kids, there always seems to be this common theme of love, love that is won and love that is lost or of unrequited love. And there are moments as well when the one seeking to be loved will look for some magic potion or a spell to somehow make the individual they love, love them in return. But it never works. The very definition of love is choice. The freedom to make that choice. Why would anyone want someone whose love had to be coerced or manipulated by fear or control? What joy would come from that? None at all. The one demanding and manipulating such a love would themselves be a prisoner to his or her own vanity. The end of such a pursuit is emptiness and destruction. It cannot be love if the choice to love is eliminated. Now, we've taken a look at statements by Richard Dawkins in previous episodes. And this one is one that we've reviewed before, but I want to come back to it. And this statement has to do with the universe and our existence in it. He says, quote, The universe we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is, at the bottom, no design, no purpose, no evil, and no other good. Nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. DNA neither knows nor cares. DNA just is. And we dance to its music. So, what do you do with that statement? I mean, for me, there's so much logical inconsistency in this statement that it defies all levels of sophistication. First, let's just... Take a look at this one line. DNA just is. Well, how does he know? 
We've barely scratched the surface on DNA, how it works, and how it's organized. It's akin to saying the alphabet just fell from the sky one day, and when it hit the ground, all the letters organized into words forming the complete volume of Webster's Dictionary. Would anyone seriously consider this even remotely possible as an explanation to the existence of the dictionary? What about this one? Again, uh, if you look at previous episodes, we reviewed the mysteries and the wonders of DNA. One gram of your DNA and my DNA has within it the capacity to fit 700,000 gigs of information, and we marvel at the engineering of a computer that can fit only 0.00143% of that total number. One gram of your engineering, of my engineering, outdoes 700 Apple iMacs, and DNA just is? Explain how I can take Dawkins seriously. Now that aside, and that's a pretty big whopper to just set aside, the very concept that the universe, that you and I simply dance to the music, implies that we're drones and products of determinism, that there is no independent thought, therefore no capacity to choose. We simply play our part in the play because DNA neither knows nor cares. There is no evil or good. We just are. If this is true, then that which we perceive as love is really just an illusion. And choice itself also an illusion. And our existence really just an illusion. It's basically the worst parts of the matrix. But if you read Dawkins' other writings and listen to him speak, he consistently pronounces God to be evil. But he just said, there is no evil. His own argument defeats his moral posturing. How then can we take him and others who say the same things seriously? And not only this, but take the opening line where he states, the universe has precisely the properties we should expect. Well, wait a minute. Expect? Based on what? Have you tested the lengths and limits of all existence in the, in the known universe to be able to make such a statement? So, there is no God because you surmised it by your own finite thinking, but would assume the knowledge that only a God or designer could have of the universe in making such an absolute statement of knowing the answer to an equation which has not been tested or proven? Now again, I'm not a scientist or an expert, but how can anyone take that statement seriously? He assumes that we should accept this statement as absolute in a universe that he says is not absolute, but the product of random events. And there's no purpose. So should we take what he is saying as something that's been predetermined and not tested? Because after all, it just is. Which then means you just are. You're the product of 
your DNA, dictating and determining your actions, your perceptions, and since we all just dance to the music of our DNA, is your DNA the standard by which we all should also dance? Who's the one controlling the music, and who's the one choosing the music we all dance to? You seem to know. There's only one song that we all dance to, right? And is it yours since you assume it to be so? Since you say we're a product of random chance. It would appear that since Dawkins assumes that we could all expect the universe to be so, under these conditions, that the mystery of the universe has been solved and our existence determined. So, what choice do you actually have? None. What is truth? There is none. What is love? There is none. In effect, then, there is no hope, no happy ending. There's nothing but nothing. The current cry of the world is enough. We've had enough. Enough of the senseless killing. Enough of the racism, the division, the sexual misconduct, the abuse, the corruption, the mistreatment of the poor, the callousness towards the sick and the suffering, the corruption of political and religious leaders, the hate, the loss and the indifference. We're tired. We're tired. We're tired of all the media personalities, the political activists. And what is it that we're tired of? What is it that we're crying out for? It's against all these things. The murder, the rape, the greed, the prejudice, the hate by one race over another, against inequality. Why? Are any of these things good? No. They're evil. That's why we don't want them. Hence the cry for justice. Hence the cry, enough. We want it stopped. And in its place? Mercy grace, goodness, justice, peace, happiness, love. But in the world that Dawkins describes, we cannot choose for these things. They just are. They just happen. Why then is the world crying out against these things? Because we believe that there's something better. We believe these things that are unacceptable can be changed. We yearn for the better. In essence, we want a world with 
no evil. We want the good. Is it possible? The cries that are being heard are saying yes. Isn't this the very definition of hope? Being able to see beyond the current circumstances to a different end. Can it be done? Now, we spend a lot of time on arguments, mostly from the side of science, of atheism and humanism. What about the other side of the coin? God is love. This is an absolute statement, and it's made by John in the book that he wrote in the New Testament. Is it true? Last episode, we spent a lot of time on the person of Jesus. Whether he existed or not, and we establish he did. There's enough documentation in history that shows us he lived and he died. Where a lot of people have their problems are the resurrection, but that's something else that we have to spend time on. We've already determined that one cannot deny the existence of God solely on the basis of the existence of evil, because by identifying evil, you already assume that there is good. And the cries of humanity throughout history, and especially now, are proof that there is a moral framework that exists in the universe, or else what are we crying out for? Are we grasping with our hands into some vacuum? Because if that's the case, why even try? We're deluded. If we're truly looking for and yearning for the opposite of what we see now, for the, for the love and peace, mercy and grace and happiness that we yearn for, where do we look for it? Are these all just a product of randomness, or are they a product of intention, of choice? If the statement, God is love, is true, then God must first allow for freedom to choose, and that's the most difficult thing for many to accept. If he doesn't allow for freedom or choice, then this statement is false, and we might as well stop here. But because I, too, have had enough with what's happening in the world, because I also know the reality of pain and of loss, of, of, of illness, of division, hate, and evil, I have to look around and say, who has the answers? Yes, I choose not to do these things. I also choose to do good. But what is the end of all of this? Where, where, is it, where is it all going? Because if life is just random, then death really is all I can hope for. That's all you can hope for. To, to no longer experience this reality that so many have had enough of. And you know what? Many make that choice by opting out of life themselves. They commit suicide. That also means leaving those I love behind and, and losing them in the process of life 
How can we be born to live only to know that one day death is the end of it all? That's the end of the story. Well, some will say this is the truth of our existence. This is the basis for existence, beginning and end, life and death. And by somehow accepting that, we can find peace. After all, when you're dead, you're just, you, you don't, you're, you're not aware of anything. But the fact that we mourn the loss of those we love, the fact that we pain after they're gone, is evidence that death does not belong. If it was natural, then why do we resist it so? Why struggle to find the cure for cancer, to stop the mass killing of so many, to eat right, live well? Just give in. We resist it because it doesn't belong. It means that morality, that the morality we're all looking for and striving for in this world has a framework. It comes from an extrinsic source. Otherwise, how can we claim for morality? Otherwise, we're each a law unto ourselves, which means we're not accountable to anyone but ourselves. But then if this is true, then why should we care for anyone else and about anyone else? And then we must also ask, who gets to dictate what is moral and what is not moral? The atheist J.L. Mackey makes this incredible statement, and from his point of view, an unlikely conclusion on morality. Quote, we might well argue that objective, intrinsically prescriptive features supervenient upon natural ones constitute so odd a cluster of qualities and relations that they are most unlikely to have arisen in the ordinary course of events without an all-powerful God to create them. Unquote. If we are to ascribe to a relativistic view of morality, then we can just pick and choose which values are most important and discard others, thereby also making pronouncements on the value of life. But if we're all created equal, then no human has the right to make such a relativistic moral pronouncement about anyone else. And it also follows then that one cannot be moral or intrinsically good without this objective moral framework or an objective moral creator that makes it so. Otherwise, how could anyone say, I am moral? The logical question that would follow is, based on what? What is moral? <laughs> What is moral is the same question as what is truth? Atheism and science, the progressive philosophy of the postmodern world says 
that man is somehow intrinsically good. That is in the process of evolution for man to progress. Our civilized and well-reasoned theories, born out of an academic and scholarly society, is the answer to the ills of the modern world. But, but as has been already pointed out, in the last century, amidst a boom in innovation, invention, technological advances in engineering, science, the medical field, education, etc., there has been more war, more conflict, more death. It would seem that being more civilized has had no effect on the trends of immorality and evil. When we go to the teachings and ideologies of religions, we find this general consensus of the ideal being love and peace. The way by which we get there is a different is, is a bit different in each belief system, but I believe that all of us could at least come to the table and agree with this premise, love is the answer. Love and peace are the desired end. For some, there's only one way and one truth. For many others, the answer is that there are many ways to God or many gods, and there are uh, different ways to morality, to love, and to uh, achieve peace. But this latter opinion of many leading to one adopts a relativistic point of view. It doesn't matter what you choose as long as love and peace are the ultimate goal. In other words, the ends justify the means. That can be dangerous. And this is what is known as pluralism. All ways lead to God or to altruism, to the right and to the good. But do they? You would have to put each individual religion and belief system to the test in order to prove that. This is not just a matter of reaching a world of peace and love. And while I long after that, and hopefully all of you listening, want the same thing, it can't be approached by the very system that says you are a law unto yourself because then we're all little tiny gods over our own little tiny universes. Good and evil are determined by me and by you and by our neighbors and by everyone. We've now created a system of many laws, different variations of these laws, a never-ending list of do's and don'ts to how to arrive at love and peace. Who gets to decide then? This has already proven unworkable and illogical. What about the other side? The side that says only one way, only one truth. The side of exclusivism. Now, we've already talked about the fact that there are over 4,000 religions that are active in the world today. But as we've talked about in, these previous, in the previous podcasts, what what makes the most sense is to look at and evaluate the most prominent, and we establish that there are five. Christianity, Judaism, Islam, Buddhism, and Hinduism. Now, if we're to be fair and objective, then we can't assume anything. We must accept they each have merit to be observed and studied. 
After all, they still exist today, and each of these religions have their roots in a long thread of history. Each of these makes claims through its writings, by their founders, and in their stories. As we should do with any claims that are made, we should question with boldness, and that's what we've been doing. Are all of these claims true? Does it matter? Now, in the context of the real world, right before our eyes, the cries of enough, the pleading for the murder, the killing, the disease, the pain, to all stop that love, joy, peace, and unity are all ideals which we all are striving for and want so badly, then it does matter that we look at these questions. Each of us has a choice to make, and here is the awesome part of this, the fact that we have the freedom to choose. And this choice goes far beyond, far beyond politics, far beyond social justice, beyond dogma and religion itself. It's about life and death. And the fact that we have that freedom to choose, even though there are people out there now trying to force their way of believing on other people, it doesn't matter. The fact is we have the freedom to choose. It's, it's the reason why there have been so many wars throughout history. It's been about freedom. And that freedom matters. Love makes freedom the first principle. If there is no freedom, there cannot be love. And so, if there be a God, God's world, God's universe, had to allow for humanity and for creation itself to choose either for good or for evil. To go against the very principles that we abide by, that we yearn for, right? Life, the pursuit of happiness, friendships, those who we, who we care for most. And at this time of the year, that time of brotherhood. You know, Christmas, it's celebrated by everyone around the world, globally. It's a universal holiday. But the basis for Christmas comes from this man called Jesus. It's in the Word. You can't avoid it. Now, many might say, well, we can take the Jesus out of Christmas and just make it about love. But here's the thing. Jesus himself was about love. His teachings were founded on love. His very mission was for love. And so you can't take Jesus out of Christmas no matter how hard how hard you try and look you can take the religion out of, out of Christmas with that I agree with you religion gets in the way sometimes but you can't take the person out of it 
This is a time in the world where people yearn to come home, to be with their loved ones, to sit by the fireside with their children, with their grandchildren. And yes, give gifts and open them. That's part of it. But I think what most people yearn for now during this time of the year is just a cheerful, universal brotherhood. And the fact that that still exists, the fact that that beginning monologue of the film Love Actually, where he sets up this scene of people at the airport, and at this time of year, lots of travelers, right? Lots of travel plans, either by by air or by car, doesn't matter. But that scene of the airport of, of, of that dad who's going to pick up his son or his daughter from college, that excitement of that day that, you know, the, the day finally arrives when he knows that later on that day he's going to go to the airport and pick her up or pick him up. Or maybe it's the grandparents who are flying out to see their kids and their grandkids. And they can't wait till the day comes where they, where they just are able to drive to the airport, get, get on that plane, and can't wait till the plane starts that descent into the city that they're visiting because they know they're going to go visit their family. Those feelings, those emotions that draw us together, they're real. And they come from that sense of love, from that fundamental place of our lives that tells us that this existence, this isn't the end of it all. There's something better. If we strive so hard against death by using our knowledge and skill to find cures for diseases, to enact social change that can somehow stop injustice, uh, end oppression, and to stop inequality that will completely eradicate the senseless killing of innocents by these lone lunatics or by extremist ideologies to help the destitute, to fight against tyranny, and to fight for the right and for peace, then it proves that we want life. If we want it so badly, if we choose love, then the truth matters. The answers matter. The search matters enough. We want life. I choose life. I know you do too. And so because of that, we need to ask, where does it come from? Where does this innate yearning come from? to be able to give love and receive love, to want to be with our loved ones, to want to save them, to want to be at their bedside if they're sick, to want to pull them out of painful situations when we see them in this state of pain. What we are yearning for and what we're crying for what we mourn for is that love. And just like Hugh Grant says at the beginning of the film, 
the messages from these people who called their loved ones when they knew they were about to breathe their last because of those who had hate. They didn't leave messages of revenge. They didn't leave messages of regret or fear. They left messages of love. And isn't that interesting? It is in our worst moments in history, meaning in low points, when people decide to disrupt joy, to disrupt togetherness by robbing us of our loved ones because of hate, that's when the best of us come together. That's when, though we might mourn and wish so much that we weren't mourning our loved ones today because of hate, because of what someone else decided to do, we cling to love. You know, the story of the Nativity has uh, brings with it this um, this prelude, if you will, where we see the angels coming to the shepherds and saying, Glory to God in the highest, peace on earth, goodwill to men. And it's, um, it, it is a greeting uh, of goodwill to everyone. It's something that at, at, at Christmas time is very significant. But the interesting thing about the actual verse that comes straight out of the nativity story, out of the scriptures, is if you look at how it's written in the original language, it doesn't say peace, goodwill to men. It says peace on earth and to men of goodwill. That's a huge difference. It really puts the the choice of peace on us. Not on God, because God, He's already revealed to us that He wants to grant us peace. But to those who don't want it, how can they, how can they have it? How can they claim to want to give it if they really don't want it, if they act and live like they don't want it? There's a huge difference to how it's written in the original language. Peace on earth and to men of goodwill. Are we, men and women, of goodwill? If that's what we want and yearn for, if that's how, if that's how we live, if that's how we're teaching our children how to live at Christmas time and at all times, then yes, we can have that peace within our own lives, even in the midst of sorrow, even in the midst of pain, even in the midst of brokenness. Because, you see, Christmas, the real meaning of Christmas, has to do with this Jesus coming to earth as a baby, born as a baby, as a human being, suffering like us, crying and mourning like us, but dedicating his life to goodwill, to love, and in the end giving his life for those he 
claimed to love. He not only spoke it, but he lived it. He died for it. And that's why we celebrate Christmas. But Christmas is also a time not just to look back. You see, because this same Jesus also promised, I'm coming again. That's what makes Christmas so meaningful for so many Christians around the world. It's about a baby being born, God himself coming in the form of man, this Jesus. This Jesus who spoke love, lived love, and then challenges us to also live the same way he did, giving that same love to other people, serving others with that goodwill, giving that peace and that love. But then he gives the promise that this world is going to be recreated, that he's coming again. So while Christians look back at the first advent, right, they are also looking forward to a second advent. That that wasn't the only time we could expect this Jesus to come, but that he's coming again. And he promises to recreate the world as he first made it. Where there is no death, no pain, no sorrow, no loss. Where all of this madness stops. Finally, we begin again. And to those who want, to those who yearn, to those who live goodwill, they'll get it. They'll get that promise. That's what Jesus says. That's why Christmas is that time of love. And so we go with that promise or we don't. It really comes down to that, this Christmas season. We have the choice, and that's why we can be assured with all certainty that actually God indeed is love.